This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners. Mahatma Gandhi once said, the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. The same can be said of healthcare organizations serving patients within their local communities. Think about it. In value-based care, the truest measure of any healthcare organization's success from both an economic and a moral imperative is how it treats its most vulnerable patients. It just doesn't get any clearer than that. Serving the underserved, the 5% that drives 50% of medical spend, those that are dealing with serious illness due to chronic disease, mental health issues, or substance abuse, that should be the most important focus we should have in our industry. And with this intersection between vulnerability and minoritized populations, we have to start thinking about value-based care and health equity as one and the same. In this week's episode, we're going to be speaking with two leaders in value-based care, Michael Redu and Dr. Gregory Foti, who serve only those who are the sickest of the sick, and they are getting outstanding outcomes. You know, Eric, I'm really excited for our listeners to hear from Michael and Greg today. Their organization, Absolute Care, is a leading innovator in patient-centered value-based care. They are what I would call an integrated chronic care, patient-centered ambulatory ICU that partners with health plans to care for only the most vulnerable and complex patients. They're similar to other high-touch relationship-based primary care organizations. However, they don't spread risk by accepting global capitation within the entirety of a normalized managed population, including caring for those who are relatively healthy. Absolute care sees only the sickest of the sick and they're getting positive results with their comprehensive multidisciplinary care model by focusing on all aspects of a patient's life, including social, like housing, food, isolation, behavioral, substance abuse disorders, and medical. And they give the patients the resources they need to fully change their lives. Well, before we kick off this interview, I wanted to introduce our listeners to Michael and Gregory. So Michael Redu is the CEO of Absolute Care. And before joining Absolute Care in January, 
Mr. Radu was a senior advisor at the CMS Innovation Center, and prior to that, he ran Medicaid and Medicare health plans in various capacities, including serving as a regional CEO for United Healthcare and as an executive vice president for WellCare. And Dr. Gregory Foti is a founding physician of the Absolute Care model and serves as the chief of innovative operations. Before joining the ABC team, he served as senior medical director for Bravo Health, HealthSpring, and Cigna. He also served as the physician advisor, chair of utilization management at Summit Health System in Pennsylvania. So let's now hear from Michael and Gregory as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Michael and Gregory, welcome to Race to Value. It's so great to have you on this week. Gentlemen, I thought a great way to start our conversation today would be to start with the absolute care, care model and the company culture that has evolved over the last two decades. The company started in 2000, opening its first center in Atlanta with the primary focus on treating members with HIV and AIDS. And that quickly became an HIV center of excellence, achieving impressive results, an 88% retention rate and a 97% undetectable rate. And in serving this vulnerable population in a very specialized way, a surprising thing happened along the way. With so many of your members free of the symptoms of HIV and AIDS, they began seeking primary care from you. They were coming in for help in controlling asthma, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, and all of the other conditions that life and aging had thrown their way. And then the company, as I understand it, really transformed. It assembled a larger team of qualified, passionate practitioners to offer whole life care in a new, larger center. And in the last two decades, Absolute Care has expanded its facilities into multiple locations in several states and has treated thousands, tens of thousands of high-acuity, chronically ill members by leveraging innovative population health management tools with a really unique wraparound care model. I mean, truly outstanding results. I've seen that you guys have been able to reduce inpatient admissions by 50%, a 49% reduction in inpatient stays, 34% reduction in ED visits, 24% in specialist visits, and I can go on and on. So we're going to talk a little bit later about the beyond medicine aspect of your care model, but let's first talk about care delivery and company culture. What makes your team so effective in engaging members and getting the results that you're seeing with your managed population? And as leaders in value-based care who have been in a career-long journey and transformation in healthcare, what is your personal why? And how does that foster the sense of compassion that's hardwired into the absolute care culture? Yeah, so this is Dr. Greg Fodi, Chief Medical and Transformation Officer at Absolute Care. Great question. Thank you for that. And, and, and so my why right now is sort of why I went into value-based care in itself. And if you ask me the question on why I went to medical school, it's just like everybody else for the most part, is that I really wanted to help people. And then as, as you get into residency, as you get into medical school, and you really get jaded almost immediately with the fee-for-service system and really truly seeing the folks that we were taking care of returning to emergency rooms, being readmitted. So really understanding that, getting frustrated with that immediately really from day one. And then knowing that there just really had to be a new way to care for this population. Again, Absolute Care takes care of the four to 6% of the population, highest utilizers, most marginalized complex populations being solely on the provider side and learning how much more freedom when you take risk and you're in a value-based purchasing contract that you have to really 
solve the issues of this vulnerable, marginalized, complex population. And, and when you're able to take risk and be a part of a robust value-based agreement, you have so much more flexibility to be able to take care of this population. And I would say one of the true, if there is a secret sauce to the model, it's being in a risk agreement, value-based agreement, it affords you time. And that time affords you greater access for our members and truly building trust with our members. So when we meet our members for the first time, you know, it's not a 15 minute visit. It's not a half an hour visit. I tell our providers in, in our model now, take off that white coat, that stiff white coat, sit down and stay a while, meaning really hear our members' story, how they got from A to B. A lot of them are going to tell you about ad adverse childhood events. They're going to tell you about PTSD. And then once you understand their story, you hear your story, you're understanding gaps in care, and then taking risk and contracts, you're able to fill those gaps in care. And many times those gaps are not medications, right? This population has interacted with the healthcare system multiple times, seeing so many doctors, so many providers in the emergency rooms and hospitals, and pretty much they all prescribe the right amount of insulin or blood pressure medications, and that just was not the issue. So when they come into an absolute care office, having that time to understanding where their gaps are, and we'll talk about it more, but we have a lot of interventions to be, really be able to fill in those gaps. You know, we're going to talk about social determinants of health. We're going to talk about housing interventions and food interventions and social support systems. But I would say the culture of absolute care is, again, we serve a marginalized, vulnerable, complex population. This population has not received the respect that they should have had from day one in the healthcare system. With that, when they come into our office, we're able to give them that respect. And I mean, it's manners, it's just ma'am, it's, it's just sir, it's can I get you a drink of water and the time to spend with them. Yeah, and this is Mike Radio, and I'll, I'll add on to what uh, Dr. Foti mentioned there. He mentioned, obviously, investing in a culture of, of trust, which is so critical, as, as Dr. Foti will, will talk about weaving in medical issues, social cycle issues and social determinants, building that trust is important to, to establishing a care plan that members will participate and guide us towards. The other part I'd probably touch on is time. We really slow down our practice. If you think even of the most intense integrated practices, and you've had many of these really talented organizations on your podcast, they're seeing four or 500 members per panel size for a, a practitioner, a doctor, nurse practitioner, or, or physician assistant. Our average panel size is even more intense. We're at 275 on average per clinician. And the second thing we do is add a support team. So we have two medical assistants. We actually call them care team coordinators because their job is to make sure that our members understand the interactions that they've just had. As much as we give the gift of time and our practitioners and physicians slow down, they can spend well over an hour with our patients. But even as that time happens and then the doctor leaves the room and folks are trying to 
collect their orders and the next step sometimes, and we've all experienced this with ourselves and our family upon discharge from a clinical setting, you sort of lose focus, lose attention. So we have the care team coordinator come back in the room, confirm the instructions and the next steps, guide them, whether it's to the pharmacy or lab work or to a specialty referral. And then they have the responsibility around following up and making sure that members are seeking those services because we know what happens so often in fee-for-service medicine is we all try to do good work. We have primary care providers that are guiding a care plan and good health and evidence-based practice, but then life happens to members. They're busy, they have other needs, and they, we lose track of their follow-up. And so these care team coordinators, there's two of them assigned to every practice, to every person, are responsible for discharge instructions and follow-up. The second and third team members we have is a full-time social worker for each pod and two RN care managers. And so we have this robust team that has the time to spend with our members. We actually call them members. We don't call them patients that work at the direction of our physician and other practitioners, and then can surround that member with the gift of time, both when they're coming to see us in the center or they're out in the community and be that in meeting them in the emergency room, meeting them in other primary care physicians offices or out in the community. And I'm sure we'll get into our community model. So besides trust that Dr. Foti mentioned, I wanted to add the uh, cultural attribute of, of time. Michael and Dr. Foti, thank you so much for that overview. The value journey for absolute care really seems to be one that's characterized by innovation in your delivery model. It's been proven to optimize outcomes for the most vulnerable populations, but what's most intriguing about the absolute care mission is that it's deeply rooted in the belief that care goes beyond medicine. And this beyond medicine construct recognizes that comprehensive primary care is just one piece of working with complex populations. And your comprehensive model addresses physical, behavioral, and environmental factors, including social determinants of health, which you've referenced briefly, such as substance use, transportation, food insecurity, and housing instability. And Absolute Care really embraces the idea that focusing on improving SDOH, where people live, work, play, worship, eat, gather, these things really improve the quality of their care, restore their health, and reduce the cost of doing it. Well, let's take the housing instability, for example. You had a member story on your website that was more illustrative of SDOH success than I've seen from any other provider organization. You had a, a member who was homeless and suffering from multiple chronic conditions and made over 200 trips to the hospital emergency room, had 70 days inpatient care, amassing claim costs of over $140,000. This is an all but too routine example of how the health system has failed a patient but you took action with what you saw as a prime contributor to the problem. Absolute Care offered to pay for his housing for an entire year. And as expected or hoped, at least, the ER utilization went down to zero. And the member is now medically stable and effectively managing his chronic disease. This is just one of many success stories with SDOH intervention. Can you discuss further your beyond medicine approach to care and how it works to balance life issues with health issues to get the outcomes you're looking for? And how does Absolute Care approach partnerships in the community to meet the social needs for the vulnerable and underserved populations that you care for? 
Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. We focus on the top four to six percent of the highest utilizing, most vulnerable, marginalized, complex populations. And medicine is the easiest part of what we do. Everyone around town, or at least the majority, I guess 99% of the docs around town know how much insulin to prescribe and blood pressure medications. And that's why we our motto really is beyond medicine at the core of what we do. And so, as Mike mentioned, having that luxury of time, that attribute of time to really take care of our members, we get to hear their stories. When we hear their stories, there's major gaps as they got from A to B, as, as they went from adverse childhood events to everything else that happened in their life. And now they have real gaps. So absolute care has to have interventions to meet those gaps, to meet the needs of the population. Housing is one of them. It's definitely the most probably robust one that we have. With housing, it's a major part of our program. We do it in a couple ways. So when we are in a market, we build PPO network of landlords around town. We go out, we vet them, we tour their apartments to make sure they're nice. And those are more long-term solutions that that will invest in and and will pay for the members. Also in every market, there are community-based organizations that we truly partner with and we try to leverage their resources as well. We build real tight relationships with them. And then as you know, there are actually some health plans that are stepping into this arena as well. And we are a perfect opportunity to partner with the health plan to be able to leverage some of the things that they stood up because we are taking care of that population who truly needs the housing interventions. And then we have other interventions recently that uh, we're just about to roll out to some other markets where we are able to build modular housing. And we're looking actually for our first market to do that right now. We, uh, we have a partner and an opportunity to stand up, up 10 to 20 units using modular housing. We'll staff that with aides and medical assistants and other providers as needed 24-7. And I can tell you it, it is a truly robust intervention. And I love the win-win interventions. It, it, it's the right thing to do for the member. It immediately drives down utilization. So it's a great thing for our partnering health plans. It's certainly something that we're using all the time. As far as the other social determinants of health, you know, it's food insecurity. Uh, we're partnering with food banks. There's many entities, as you probably know, called Food is Medicine and Food is Medicine programs. Uh, in all the markets that we work in now, we're partnered with them. We do have food pantries in the office that we have as well. And addressing food insecurity is just huge when you're trying to get hypertension under control or building trust with the members. And again, it's just the right thing to do. And then another big social determinant or adverse social determinant that we see with our members are social isolation. And there's been a lot of studies recently with social isolation and driving adverse outcomes. And, you know, you can have a population with the same comorbid issues and they're not socially isolated. And then the same cohort with the same comorbid issues and they are socially isolated. And the ones that are socially isolated have, have significantly worse outcomes, as, as you would imagine. They just don't really have a support structure to help them. So building our community-based arm, our community-based muscles, going out in the streets, building 
community health workers going out, visiting those members, spending time with them, building relationships with them, helping them coordinate their care. There's many members that we take care of right now that they do not have a family and we become their first family. Yeah, and let me, uh, I think Dr. Foddy covered a lot of good ground there. Just wanted to add a, a couple of, of statistics, as he mentioned, sort of the composition of our, of our members fully 77% of our members purport food insecurity. Roughly 18% has some version of housing instability and, and about 13% report some version of health or other illiteracy. And, and I think what's interesting about the company's long 20 year journey is we stepped into addressing these issues, which as we can all acknowledge, is really an infinite problem uh, to try to take on that responsibility of supporting individuals in crisis around their life issues and, and other issues with their family. And there's only so much that we all can do, but I think pulling together in a really, as Dr. Foti mentioned, sort of practical problem-solving way using the dollars that we receive through value-based care to help members when they're in crisis. And so we're very proud of the sort of practical way we go about housing stability, whether that's paying one month's rent, whether that's paying a month's electric bill out of our member fund, or as, as Dr. Foti mentioned, some of the housing options. And then we're always looking for partners in the community, be they CBOs or health plans to work to bring our medical and clinical services along some of their housing solutions. So we think there's power in the entire community in a value-based way working to support our members in, in, in crisis and get them to be stable and have a platform and a safe location that they can receive medical care. And, and besides the member fund, which we're obviously pretty proud of, we also offer member rewards. And we use that as a, as a gift card that's uh, re reloadable. As members are active in, in care and are seeing us on a regular basis, we will provide them with a member reward card. And obviously many payers do, do some of that. And I think we've all experienced, and I've, I've worked for medical groups and for Medicaid and Medicare health plans. And we when I was working in health plans, sometimes we get feedback out of customer service and said, you know, I got this reward card. I don't know what I, what I did to get it. And so thank you, but I'm not sure, you know, what this is for. Our member reward card is really about engaging in, in your health and coming to see our practitioners, be that our care manager, our pharmacist, or our doctor. And when they're engaging in regular care, we will provide those member reward cards, which we also think about as an intervention around social determinants and can be used obviously to help them with uh, their life needs. Yeah, and just to add to that, just jumping back to the high level here is being a provider taking risk allows us and affords us to be able to do these things. Most providers would love to be able to do these things for their members. I, I have a lot of friends and a lot of colleagues who work in fee-for-service models they all went into medicine to help people. They all have kind hearts. The issue is the system. And so being able to take risk, having a value-based contract, especially taking full risk, and the ability to use that funding to meet the members' needs 
is critically important. And that's why really having to push these value-based contracts and, and getting more of them out there. There's a tremendous amount of need on a national level. Absolute Care takes a subset of them. There's other entities that take a subset of them. We need more of them across the United States. And I, I just think it's a great model because having seen both sides of the coin, this one, you can truly meet the members' needs where they are and treat them in venues where they need to be rather than always going to the emergency rooms and the hospitals. Well, that's great work, gentlemen. And Greg, you know, I, I completely agree. You know, value-based care really does allow for this type of work to take place. And I'm just thinking about how do we solve for social determinants of health at a national level if we, as we think about the immense challenge of SDOH and caring for the most vulnerable in our society, we need to really apply a lens that internalizes the root cause of these inequities and everyone deserves healthcare and the resources necessary to achieve it. And society really needs to think about how do we dismantle the fence and remove the barriers to give everyone the opportunity to achieve their health goals in the most effective way for them. And unfortunately, dismantling this fence is extremely difficult because it's so entrenched and pervasive in our society as a manifestation of institutional racism and other things in our country that are countervailing to some of the, the outcomes that we want to see. As a result of society, I think, becoming more aware of these health inequities and racial disparities of care because of the pandemic, we're now really seeing value-based care become more inextricably linked to health equity. And, you know, for example, the National Association of ACOs recently released a white paper advocating for more support from government agencies to facilitate health equity and social determinants of health work. And at the federal level, there's even discussion about how to reduce racial disparities in care by re-engineering pay for performance models to include health equity as a financial measure of success. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra and CMS Administrator Chiquita brooks Lashure have been really vocal about efforts to tackle health equity to better understand the root cause of social determinants of health and disparities that we're seeing and, and using value-based care as a vehicle to solve for them. You both have been thinking critically on this issue, and Mike, you've have, you have a interesting perspective to share given your work with CMMI. I wanted to get both of your opinions on how do we begin to think as a country about how to build policies and value-based care to root out some of the injustices we see? And then what does an organization like Absolute Care, what role does that play as a scalable solution for addressing systemic issues related to race and poverty in marginalized communities? I appreciate the question, Eric. It's a great one. And I certainly did a brief brief stint with the talented colleagues at, at the Innovation Office and CMS. And I think where I see some green shoots coming through is the multi-year journey towards value-based care, obviously uh, sort of codified through the Innovation Office around various demonstrations, be that originally MSSP and, and then later, later days, direct contracting models. So I think to your point, the push towards value-based care and away from, I'll call it transactional regulation, transactional rulemaking, where we're trying to prescribe at a national level procedures and processes that when applied to various communities just don't work. 
And I think the more flexibility over time, and we've seen this across administration for the better part of the last 15 plus years, is allowing for innovation and demonstration around value-based care, I think gives some basic building blocks to allow local innovation, which I think is that's where it has to occur. It has to have engaged conveners. That could be a CBO, it could be a dominant health plan, it could be a large integrated system, or it could be primary care organizations such as ourselves that are trying to bring across stakeholders to tackle the problem. And, and I think we need to think about this as really a health outcome. The lack of food, the lack of a safe place to sleep at night, not having trust in your physician. And we've seen plenty of studies about varying outcomes that happen across different racial groups, be that access to care or be that trust or be that bias in the system, is that convening across stakeholders in a value-based way, I think gives some connecting tissue in, in allowing us to begin, begin on this journey. I do see some other minor innovations. I, I think there's certain parts of the federal government that have to enforce rules with the trillions of dollars that they're responsible for. So there's sort of an inherent bias against innovation. But if you think about even some of the supplemental benefits that are now allowed under Medicare Advantage, I think that CMS has started to kind of recognize that how they count and credit payers with providing these services. And unfortunately, we've seen it always, if you don't measure something, you're not going to advance it. And so I think some of that has been helpful. I, I don't think it's material enough. I don't think it goes far enough. And then lastly, I'll say, Eric, you, you mentioned it, it's around measurement and whether social determinants gets into the risk adjustment system and, and burden of illness system for Medicare or frankly for Medicaid. I think that would be a really critical innovation. I think whether it gets embedded in risk stratification engines and how we think about measurement and being able to document that and see the outcomes. And, and so many times we're investing in these things. And, and I've seen that at one of the health plans I work for, we were trying to create grants and different programs. Maybe we'd fund a food program or a housing program. And we had no idea what happened to the members when they went to that program because of HIPAA, because we didn't have a formal contract. And so we were writing sort of blank checks and then not seeing the accountability pull through of what is actually happening to the members. So I think some freedom around measurement, some innovation around HIPAA, so you have this connecting tissue that you're funding these programs, you're applying these resources, and then you can see on the back end the in impact on ER diversion, rehospitalization. And I think if you get that virtuous cycle going, I think that gives people the courage to invest, invest more. And lastly, I'll say for us, we spent a lot of time documenting around social determinants and the new Z codes. And, and many of our payers, Medicaid or Medicare or as they are, are really surprised by how much information they get from us that just by virtue of other practices and the way they're set up and designed, there's really no incentive to document Z codes. It doesn't go into income. It doesn't go into uh, revenue accuracy. And so many practices, just frankly, as busy as they are, just don't take the time to do that. But we do. And we spend a lot of time using that in our risk stratification, in our, in our attribution logic, and, and the way we think about our overall care plan. So I, I'd sort of say those, those sorts of things. And, and Greg, I don't know if you want to add in anything to that. 
No, I, I think the only thing that I would add as far as health inequities, trying to change your neighborhoods from the ground up. And as you change neighborhoods, you can change states as well. And then so, sort of from the ground up perspective and, 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 and so some examples of, of how we operate in the center. So right now we take care of 16 years old and above. Medicaid, Medicare Advantage, doles. In that, we get a lot of moms in here. We get a lot of grandmoms in here taking care of their kids. We allow kids coming in. You know, I've seen children. I've been here for eight years. I've seen kids who came in at six years old and now are 14. Our North Star, the reason why we do what we do at the end of the day is that if we can change that grandmother's life or we can change that mom's trajectory, we're changing the trajectory of their child and they won't fall into the same path that maybe mom did because we were able to get mom into a nicer place and, and, and then get her a job. And really from that side, the ground up addressing the health equity. So the next generation will really be in a better place. Gentlemen, that's so, that's so meaningful. You know, I'm a parent and to feel and recognize the value that you're contributing to families' lives is just incredible. And I want to build on this discussion about health equity. At the ACLC, we spend a lot of time thinking and focusing on health equity and its importance in the value movement. We have a competency-based framework, the Accountable Care Atlas, that specifically calls for culturally competent care to ensure that members of the care team have the necessary communication skills and cultural competencies to understand and collaboratively establish the patient's and caregiver's medical or non-medical goals and priorities. And cultural competence is, is such an important aspect of the absolute care model that is unique, especially when it comes to things like gender-affirming primary care. The absolute care serves transgender and gender non-conforming patients who seek gender affirmation and primary care services with a culturally sensitive program that includes hormone replacement therapy, uh, surgical referrals, behavioral health consultations, and self-injection training. Can you speak to the importance of culturally competent care and how it factors into the recruitment, the training programs with your staff so that the organization can better connect with complex populations in minoritized communities? Yeah, again, absolutely critical to our model, dealing with all types of, of folks. And so cultural competency is core to what we do. So when it comes to transgender, when it comes for, to a Hispanic population, we'll, we'll have folks from, from all over the world who really end up in our offices. And, and, and really, so providers, at the end of the day, most of them went into healthcare to help people. Providers were also trained in a fee-for-service model and didn't get a lot of cultural competency in medical school, in their training, in residency. So as we interview, as we onboard, as we train, it's a critical aspect in the curriculum on how we train. And one of the things that we talk about a lot in our office, and it's, it's a motto that we have, is we break the status quo and we're rebels with a cause. And the rebel with a cause could be in so many aspects, but we're rebels with a cause to make sure that someone who is transgender, there's many offices around town that don't train in cultural competency, that 
that can't take care of them, that aren't able to build trust, that aren't able to build a safe place. And again, that goes hand in hand with really breaking the status quo. And again, it goes back to the core model is that if you're not able to build trust with this population, if you're not able to give the respect that they should have always had from day one, you're not going to drive outcomes. They're going to leave. They're going to go find somewhere else or they're just going to see you as another doctor. Our job is to improve their outcomes. Our job is to improve their care. When we do take care of populations that are very high utilizing, our job is to appropriately reduce unnecessary utilization. And again, you know, I can repeat it, but the core on that is building trust and cultural competency is a fundamental way to build trust. Yeah, I think that was, uh, that was well said. I, I think I would just add that we draw from the communities that we serve and we serve our neighbors. And, and so when we're thinking about opening up a, a new center in a new community, we look at the clinical data and the financial data provided by our payer partners and we do a heat map and we look to place our centers in the neighborhoods of the members most in need. And then we recruit from those neighborhoods, be that our van drivers, our pharmacy delivery folks, our front desk folks, medical assistants, our doctors, our practitioners. And then we stretch into those communities. We anchor around community health workers. We can talk a little bit more about our community model of drawing from the community to serve the community and work to meet our members where they are in their journey. And that can be across a variety of different dimensions. It could be individuals suffering from schizophrenia. It could be folks that feel disenfranchised from the health system. And we've seen that horribly exacerbated through COVID and hitting communities of color disproportionately and just showing the cracks and the rocks in the system. And so we feel in our small, small part of, of orienting ourselves towards those communities, recruiting from those communities, and then having a mantra of working alongside individuals with all varying backgrounds and having that care team from those various backgrounds and then adding that gift of time to slow down and hear the personal stories. And so the practitioners are not in and out in six minutes and documenting on the clunky EMR, they have that time to slow down and get to know individuals on their journey. And, and Greg said it earlier, that could be that could be family or childhood trauma. And, and so connecting to those stories, I think it helps inform where we go to help them in their, in their next path. Well, I'd like to ask you both about the benefits of care coordination and care navigation and treating the whole patient. I mean, let's face it, healthcare is very complicated. It's difficult to navigate. And there's often an information asymmetry between the, the member and the provider. And interdisciplinary team collaboration is showing that it can improve communication and care outcomes. And it also improves health literacy in that patients can better obtain process and information and understand you know, what's really happening to them so they can be an active participant in healthcare decision-making. And it's been shown that 
suboptimal health literacy is an independent risk factor for poor health outcomes, including increased risks of hospitalization. When nearly 90% of the population has difficulty reading, understanding, and acting upon medical information, it's no surprise that many patients are rehospitalized simply because they were too overwhelmed and confused by their care plan instructions, especially during a time of formidable distress and illness. With complex patients like yours, especially poor health literacy can really lead to poor outcomes if patients have misconceptions about their disease and there's ineffective communication with their health providers. And, you know, that's going to invariably lead to unnecessary interventions, under treatment, poor adherence to their treatment plans and, and so on. Uh, can you both discuss the importance of interdisciplinary team-based care and how it supports reduced hospitalizations, reduced ED visits, increased adherence to treatment plan, better patient experience, et cetera. How is Absolute Care able to leverage its care team as well as patient engagement technologies and telehealth and other things to better communicate with patients to improve health literacy? Yeah, again, great question. Care coordination in this population is critical. So just as an aside or a story, and I know everyone has a story about their family, but when my mom got sick two years ago, viral meningitis, it took a while to figure it out. She's quite sick, she got out of the hospital. Long story short, I know a lot of people around Baltimore. I knew the people to call. I knew exactly what they were talking about, but it took pulling teeth, getting answers on her tests and what was happening and talking to the attending. And I don't think it's because the providers working in the hospital are bad people. It's the system, right? They're sprinting through the day. They're in a fee-for-service system in, in the hospital. That's my parents with me at their side. Now take one of our members, adverse childhood events, PTSD, diagnoses, uh, 13 diagnoses, behavioral health. Again, you get the point. Vulnerable and marginalized. And you put them in that system and you put them in the hospital. So we have transitional care managers who are in the hospitals, working with the hospital social workers, the care managers, the hospital doctors. They are feeding them information. We know our members very well. We know their behavioral health issues, we know their social issues, we know their substance use issues, and we know their medical issues inside and out. When we are interacting with the hospitals, and we're feeding them all that information ahead of time. So we are reducing the redundant testing, the redundant workup, the redundant specialist visits in the hospital. And we are planning their discharge out of the hospital from the day of admission. It's critically important. And at that point, we are educating the member along the way of what's happening in the hospital as they're getting out of the hospital and setting up a really robust transitional care plan to get them into our center. Some members, we get them into the center the next day, the same day. We strive to get them in three to seven days after getting out of the hospital. The other thing that we leverage is, and, and you mentioned some technology, the markets that we work in right now, and I think they're becoming, it's improved, is the health information exchanges. And so when one of our members hits the hospital, we're using the ADT feeds. They're going to the emergency room. The second they hit the emergency room, we get the ping. We're calling the emergency room. We're letting that ED doc know, geez, Mr. Smith just had that workup. Their lab has been high for six years. Um, they've always had that spot on their CT scan. Or 
letting them know about their, their social and behavioral health situations and probably don't need to be admitted. That's not acute. It's chronic. We can send our van in to go get them out of the emergency room and bring them back into our center and wrap our arms around them. So that's really important. We've invested in our pod model. So we work in a hub and spoke model. Our hub is our brick and mortar center, very sophisticated, large center. We're capable of a lot, a lot of skill sets in there. And our spokes are our community-based teams. We can talk about that a little bit more, but we've invested. Each provider has two CTCs, their care team coordinators. And that's what their job is. They are coordinating the care for our members. They are upskilled medical assistants that we took the time to upskill them, upskill their knowledge. What does population health management mean? What are appropriate referrals? And they have a hand in coordinating and ensuring our members are getting the right care at the right time. There's no redundant testing happening. And, and so that's one way we coordinate care as well. Behavioral health is pervasive in this population. We've invested in psychiatry, psychologists, licensed social workers. And so addressing all these members' needs. And when your schizophrenia is out of control, or your bipolar or your anxiety is out of control, you cannot advocate yourself. If you can't advocate for yourself, you you can't navigate the healthcare system and you can't really take on coordination of care yourself as well. Mention just a couple others quickly. Substance use team, all of our providers have their X license doing Suboxone in the office. We have pharmacy in the office as well. This is a huge one and coordination of care. So full pharmacy in our office. We are not sending our medications to Rite Aid, CVS, Walgreens and crossing our fingers if they get their medications. Our pharmacists are tied to our, our electronic health record. They're monitoring high-risk medications. They're ensuring our, our members are, are receiving their medications. And we're following them closely to ensure that when they are on those high-risk medications, they're having the appropriate labs at the appropriate times. And if, they're, and if those labs are abnormal, we won't hand out those medications. Because many of this population ends up in the hospital because the coordination of high-risk medications, not getting their labs checked. It just goes on and on. And then the other thing that I'll mention is the acute treatment that we can do in our center. And we have what I call in urgent care on steroids. It's called our infusion center. We can take care of mild to moderate exacerbations of really acute on chronic medical exacerbations. So we're not sending 99% of the other PCPs around town are sending their members out of their center when they need a bag of IV fluids. Or if a member calls them and says, I'm nauseous, I've been vomiting, I'm, I'm not feeling quite well. Uh, they'll send them to the emergency room immediately. We will bring them in the center. We have stat labs that we're able to get. We can run the IV fluids in their center. And there's a lot of other acute care that we can do. We can do IV Lasix. We can treat asthma and COPD exacerbations. We're even doing IV insulin. So when their sugars are high, we can bring their sugars down where these are the members, when they get three to four hours of treatment, they turn the corner, we send them home. We bring them back the next day. We follow them closely. These are the exact members that if they were to end up in the emergency room, this would be a two to three or a one to two day observation stay, a bunch of specialist consults, which could lead to an admission as well. So coordination of care, we're wrapping around 
from all of our experiences at Absolute Care, working in the healthcare system, seeing where breakdowns happen. We're trying to fill almost every single gap that we possibly can when it comes to care coordination. We have a lab in our center. We're not handing our members lab sheets and lab core lab sheets or requisitions to go out and again, crossing our fingers saying, gosh, I hope they get their routine labs back. That we do it right there in the center. We walk them right down the hallway. We get their routine labs done. We get their hemoglobin A1Cs done. Um, we're able to understand immediately at the point of care what's happening with the member. This population has a hard enough time coordinating their life sometimes because of all their behavioral health issues and social issues and how vulnerable they are. We've really wrapped a full system around them to be able to take care of all their needs. And just finally, Mike already mentioned this, having a community-based team that if we schedule a member in the center or our population health management reporting or actionable reporting is showing that one of our members is better served in their homes, we have a community team arm that can go out from NPs, social workers, care managers, community health workers, depending upon what their need is and what their acuity is, we can meet it in their homes as, as well. So just really proud of what we're doing in order to, to coordinate care for these members that a lot of times they have a hard time advocating for themselves. Yeah, and one thing to add on that, I think as we talked about the culture and onboarding our clinicians and support individuals, we really do spend a lot of time working with each discipline to maximize their individual skill sets, licensure, and training. And it starts with the CTC role that Greg mentioned a minute ago, but we could also pick on our pharmacists running a Coumadin clinic or managing diabetes and thinking about our social workers and our nurses alongside our physician and other practitioners is asking each team member to do the most that they're comfortable with, that their skills can allow, and not being bound by old and bureaucratic rules. And that's what value-based care allows us to do. That's what an interdisciplinary care team allows us to do. But look, this is not easy. There's a, a physics uh, barrier to communication. There's time away from the exam room. We fund uh, really precious time every morning to do stand-up huddles with the pod and the care team. That's expensive. It's time-consuming. It's something that we feel really critical to allow in our position schedules that time to huddle in the morning, find out if any of our members have hit the emergency room last night, if anybody got admitted, somebody's coming out of the hospital needs to be transitioned. If we've got some really complex patients, all of them are complex, but really complex patients coming in in the morning that we're struggling with in terms of, of compliance to the care plan or really adjusting medications. So investing in that morning huddle across our team members and our various disciplines is really, really important. And then I'd say sort of data and information. We know that all the uh, medical record systems are organized around transactions and individual events. So we overlay an informatics system of reports and information and dashboards onto our EMR to provide the information to the care team. So every discipline can see every single interaction, can see the primary conditions that individuals are facing, can see the care plan. And then we 
have profiles and reporting around our statistics of quality and HEDIS and STARS and utilization management. Uh, and that allows the care team. And we put that up on big screen TVs. We have a pod office where everybody co-locates and on the screen are these key clinical statistics as a dashboard, as an air traffic control for the day. And so adding that time on the schedule to do that and the informatics, I think is quite critical. I want to talk a little bit more about the pharmacy integration that you mentioned in the ambulatory care settings and how that plays into the value-based care model. As I understand, and as you said, your collaborative care model includes full service on-site pharmacy that allows better coordination of care between the pharmacist and the physician. It also provides delivery of medications directly to the members who are challenged with the transportation and unable to pick them up at, at your on-site location. And with the increasing number of medications prescribed per patient, the need for chronic disease management and the importance of medication adherence, the integration of clinical pharmacist services to improve medication adherence and impact costs the reduced inpatient hospital stays and emergency visits is quite significant. I'd like to know more about the results and what the results have been with your integrated pharmacy program. And as the industry moves to value-based care, you know, what are your thoughts about seeing more integrative models of care that focus on tackling health disparities with multidisciplinary approach that includes embedding pharmacists in the primary care model? Yeah, Dan, that's such a, a critical question. And if you think about, and we sort of um, missed this a little bit when we were talking earlier about social determinants, that community-based care is a really key component of what we do, but then also getting access to our practitioners in our center is also quite critical and transportation is a big part of that. We we don't wait for our members to find us on their bus route. We send out van drivers throughout the community fully 90% of our visits come through our van service. We also offer Uber and Lyft and other ride shares when we need it on more of an urgent basis. And then we flip that model the other way around, around the medication adherence and access to medications where we have our van drivers out delivering medications. If members cannot get to our center, or that's not convenient. If we have changes in their, in, in their medication. And so that's a, a really critical aspect of reaching our, our care in the community. As, as Greg mentioned earlier, our, our members suffer on average from 13 diagnoses. They're on average facing 10 medications. And we all know what happens post-discharge from a hospital. You're getting duplicate medications. You're getting conflicting medications. Or frankly, because of the acuity of the event, you don't have the time or energy to fill your prescriptions. And so we're seeing that history occurring in real time with our EMR. We know when our patients are not filling their prescriptions, are not getting access to that. And then we give our pharmacists time to do complex medication review, medication adherence programs to make sure that these really valuable molecules and chemicals are getting and being used appropriately for our, our, our members. But maybe, Greg, you can talk a little bit more about the integrated care model. Yeah, the pharmacists are not sitting around just counting pills and <laughs> dispensing medications, although we do have a subset of them that do that, but our clinical pharmacists and some of our other pharmacists, are, they're part of our integrated care team. You know, our motto at Absolute Care is everybody is as important as anybody else on the full care team from, from van driver, building relationships to front desk. 
pharmacy is the exact same thing. So the pharmacist being a part of the integrated care team is constantly communicating with, again, they're working in our centers. They walk right down the hall to our pod teams and talking about the case, talking about alternate medications, talking about generic medications that could be used instead of a higher cost medication that could be as effective or even less effective um, that our member just came in the door with that we just acquired this member into our office. They are monitoring those high-risk medications like warfarin and lithium. Um, There's a handful of our members who are on lithium because of their behavioral health issues. That's a medication that really needs to be in a fine therapeutic value. There's others lab tests that really need to be checked and and maintained and and on high surveillance. They're checking those. They have access to our electronic health record. Any of those labs or frequency of labs are not on point. They're going to go down and talk to the provider and talk about the next course of action or the best course of action from there. So that's happening all day long. Now our clinical pharmacists have their own schedule, right? So they're actually seeing members and they're doing insulin pumps. So teaching our members one-on-one how to do an insulin pump. They're monitoring their warfarin, their blood thinner medication. So they are actually interacting with their members one-on-one as well, not only through our providers affecting member care. So it's just critically important. And, And you're right, the fact that we will drop off medications at our members' homes is very important. Yeah, and, and it, you know, it ultimately improves the compliance for the members. Again, when, so over, depending on our center, 80 to 90% of our members are using our pharmacy. They're getting our medication, their medications from us. It improves compliance on medication. Compliance and medications improves outcomes. We also improve the cost as as well. So when we inherit a member, our care teams can go out, they can help them, but we want all of our members to bring all their medications into the center. Or if we're doing a home visit, we can go around the house and find all their medications. They bring them in. And although they're probably should be on 10 medications, maybe eight medications, they come in with 40 pill bottles and prescriptions. And we and we have a meet with the pharmacists and it, it's yes, 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 no, 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 yes, yes. And a lot of them are repeats because of the fact that they've seen multiple doctors, multiple ER doctors, multiple hospital doctors. They wrote their same prescription, maybe a higher dose, maybe a lower dose. There's many times when our members come in and it's good they weren't taking their medications because actually if they did take these two medications at the same time, there would be real trouble. They're contraindicated to take these medications. And I'll mention one other aspect is that in our behavioral health population are really severe, persistently with severe, persistent mental illness, they're coming in with pill bottles. You know, they need to take their behavioral health medications again, two or three times a day. We can convert them to long acting injectables and long acting injectables are really coming into play in this population where that injectable is used once every two to four weeks, depending on the medication and what they're suffering with. But again, having a pharmacy on site improves integration, improves coordination, improves communication, and ultimately drives outcomes. Right in CVS, I mean, I'm not saying anything there, but other pharmacies don't have access to our EHR. They don't know what their labs are. They don't know what really the clinical case is. So it's, it's just a huge value add. 
Well, let's talk about behavioral health integration. It's so important in your care model. And it goes without saying that primary care is really at the tip of the spear and, you know, dealing with some of these behavioral health issues and patient populations. And 70% of primary care appointments include problems with psychosocial issues. And less than half of those primary care members ever receive any mental health treatment at all because there's such a shortage of specialists. And this is a major issue. In healthcare right now with one out of five Americans, over 51 million people that are living with a behavioral health condition. And, you know, we're seeing that now more and more. You mentioned it earlier with the impact of social isolation because of the pandemic. And, you know, on top of that, we have about 20 million individuals in our country dealing with substance use disorder and 9 million people, about 4% of the population have had suicidal thoughts in the last year. And in the Medicaid population, you have about one out of five Medicaid beneficiaries that are experiencing SUD or some mental health condition. And that equates to about 46% of the total Medicaid spending on healthcare services. So I wanted to see if you both can share with our listeners your perspective on how to achieve better integration of behavioral health and primary care. And how does Absolute Care deliver on a BH integration model given the limited supply of psychiatrists and psychotherapists to see everyone? Again, spot on with this population, vulnerable, marginalized, there's a tremendous amount of substance use disorder, behavioral health issues, um, and it's critical to have in your model. And you're right, there is a low supply of providers. So we do leverage licensed social workers in our office. There's a little higher supply of those. We can bring them in. Um, They are clinically based. They can do therapeutic interventions. They're doing motivational interview. They're working with their members and, and again, trying to build trust and move them forward from A to B to C throughout their trajectory of care. In saying that, psychiatry medication management is a huge need across the United States. You know, there's not enough psychiatrists to go around. So, We have brought psychiatry into the organization. So there's a model that I think you've heard of before on on other podcasts and have read about. Collaborative care model is incredibly important. And that's a way you can take one psychiatrist who who in the past traditionally would see every member one-on-one and they could only have a panel of, you know, call it a thousand members at this intensity. But Our collaborative care model really has three tiers. Number one, that psychiatrist is building didactic material, going out and educating our primary care providers to upskill them so they feel comfortable themselves to prescribe the medications, to escalate the medications, and to start therapy and really how to assess this population. A lot of our providers in the center are internal medicine and family medicine providers. So they have some experience with it and having a psychiatrist on board who can upskill them and support them and be there for questions really moves the needle on that. So now one psychiatrist is spanning their knowledge across a much larger population. Number two, using a pop health approach. So building registries, pulling stuff out of our electronic health record on the back end, using claims from the health plans, we can build a registry. For an example, we have a registry now for schizophrenia. And on that registry, it outlines highest spend utilizer to lowest, their intervention, how engaged they are, are they on the right medication? What medications are they on? And that psychiatrist actually can do chart reviews and use that registry to drive outcomes and to put programs together that are then 
leveraged at the primary care provider level that again, you're scaling the knowledge of, of that psychiatrist across the population and you're able to intervene and touch a lot more members. And then third, that psychiatrist for a really severe, persistent, mentally ill population, they are seeing them one-on-one, but many times all they need to do is see them maybe one, two or three times. They get, their on their, they get them on their medications, they get them stable, and then that member goes back to their primary care provider to continue the refills of those medications. And that way, the psychiatrist can then just fill their queue with new members that they need to get to. And then if that member that went back to the primary care provider becomes uncompensated for one reason or another, they can refer them back to the psychiatrist, or they can just make a quick phone call to the psychiatrist on staff and say, hey, I know you saw Mr. Smith. Here's the symptomatology. They were on Respiridol, two milligrams, two times a day. What do you think I should do here? And so that's our version of collaborative care model. And of course, in that, we have our licensed social workers and our behavioral health care managers working those registries with our psychiatrist. So that's behavioral health. And then our addiction specialist, we just brought in another addiction specialist to work on our team. And same sort of approach that I was mentioning with behavioral health as well. We're using a collaborative care model, same three-tier model there, but we really want all of our providers to be, to have their X waiver and to be able to prescribe Suboxone in our centers. It's critically important. And, and then, you know, of course, as you know, we partner with other CBOs and uh, if they need more intensive services, if they need day program and things like that, we have preferred providers that we work with in certain markets where if we do refer those member, our members to them, it's not like we're sending them into sort of the black hole and they never come back and we don't know what's happening. We're meeting with them once a month. We're having rounds on, on what's happening, what we're seeing, what you're prescribing and how we work as an integrated team with our preferred providers to drive outcomes as well. So that's how we do it. And again, you're right. It's critically important if you're dealing with the top four to 6% of the population and you're not driving behavioral health and substance use treatments and interventions and recognizing that it's going to be really hard to move the needle and really help the population and appropriately drive down the utilization. Yeah. And one thing I'll add, just thinking about our, our community-based model is, is thinking about when we are identifying prospective members, we run a complex algorithm that everybody has their, as their favorite ours is more uh, condition specific and diagnosis specific. And so we run our algorithm and we're getting a list of, of members that payers are giving us the responsibility to take care of. And over time, as they were saying to us, you have these community health workers, they go meet these members in the community and you talk about the model that's absolute care. And there's a good portion of members that like what we can provide and the time and the trust and the services and a good percentage of them will choose to, to join absolute care. And many of whom, even though they have these complex conditions and these many diagnoses are not seeing primary care or other regular sources of, of a medical home on a regular basis. But having said that, there are a, a portion of, of members seeing another primary care physician that like that physician, maybe they've grown up with them and, and it's a family doc or something that's they're trying to do the best work, but they don't have the time and kind of the resources that we have using our value-based arrangement. And so we use complex care managers out into the communities to support these members that are seeing 
other primary care physicians at the request of our health plan partners. And Sarah, to your question, we have both drawn from behaviorally trained care managers along with nurses. We have the social workers, MSWs, and RNs out into the community as complex care managers. We use a risk stratification identification engine to route members appropriately based on the community that they're in and the condition set that they have. And then we seek to meet our members in the emergency room, in the primary care offices, or in their home using these care managers that work alongside each other and work as part of a team that is using data and analytics, hopefully to guide members to the right discipline, if you will, to to have that focus on conditions. Obviously, that's not the clinical intensity, as Greg was mentioning, around psychiatry and psychology that we have in our, in our centers. But I think it's just as important that we reach these members out in the communities and where they're living and in other care practitioners that want to do the right thing, but because of resources or the way the practice is set up, they don't have the time uh, and the availability that we can hopefully help uh, to get better outcomes by, by doing those interventions. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for spending time today and providing such in-depth expertise and on all the great work that you're doing there at Absolute Care. And as we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to get your parting thoughts on the movement to value-based care. I mean, it's going to take time to fundamentally transform 20% of our economy, but it seems like COVID-19 has definitely accelerated this race to value. And as you reflect on some of the chaos in the world that we have around us and the moral and economic imperatives that we have to deliver health value, how should the healthcare industry be thinking about value-based care for the future? I'd love to hear your thoughts as leaders in, in value. Well, yes, it's such a, I know you all are such a strong advocate around this movement. And I've spent the bulk of my career, even my first job running a primary care center was a, was a value-based fully capitated primary care center 25 plus years ago. Now we didn't have the cloud and EMR and, and didn't have the financial sophistication, the data analytics we have today. And so not all of those early experiments were successful. So this is at least in my part of this uh, has been a, a a continuing journey is both being on the, the payer and the regulatory and the provider side. I'm bullish. I, I think we all know this is the right thing to do. We've seen the powerful outcomes and the flexibility of providing resources at the patient level. Having said that, we know that there are a lot of entrenched economic interests. It's very difficult to disrupt your livelihood and transition and burn the ships to settle the new world. But I'm encouraged by the work that I've seen at various payers of converting their contracts more and more to value-based contracts. Obviously, I'm thrilled with the innovation with uh, obviously Absolute Care, but just as importantly, other of our colleagues in the community that have a variety of different value-based models, be those focused on particular populations or ethnic groups or bundles or certain diseases. So we've seen just a frenetic amount of innovation over the last five and maybe 10 years in, in some of that. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I think this regulatory framework, we know that there's a, a big book of rules and regulations and CFR and all that complicated stuff, both Medicare and Medicaid, that gets in the way. But I think that when people come down to it and sit in a room and sort of think about these problems, everyone can agree the transactional volume-based method is broken, 
it's harmful, it's a disaster for America. And so I have some hope that we'll continue these journeys across different constituencies to aim toward the North Star of the triple aim of better outcomes and satisfaction and lower cost. Yeah, I mean, I would echo what Mike said, and I'm extremely optimistic. And I, and, and I can say, you know, in the last handful of years, when value-based care has hit the hospitals and, and health plans have embraced it, and now you have organizations, you know, like Absolute Care and others. Yeah, I, I think at the first time that I've been able to sit around a table with health plan, hospital, and outpatient provider entities like ourselves and have a conversation. So that's why I'm optimistic. And, and what that tells me is that it's gaining traction where 10 years ago it was, yeah, I could sit with the health plan and talk about it, but the hospital wasn't at the table. So I do think it's starting to creep into some hospitals, which is optimistic. I just think from a regulatory standpoint, we're seeing shimmers of light here and there and cracks and being able to, like Mike said, I think earlier, coding social determinants of health and Z codes. Hopefully we'll see that more. Hopefully that'll go into risk adjustment and be able to open up funding for more things like social determinants of health. I, th I think we can, we continue to do what we do. We push the limits. We show the good work that we're doing. We highlight our outcomes. And I say, you all are doing a great job and really appreciate what you do and, and the venue that you have to really get voices like ours out there and the other many, many great organizations that you've had on your podcast that I've listened to and, and just an honor to be a part of the movement. So thank you. Gentlemen, the honor is all ours. Mike, Dr. Fodi, you know, your organization, Absolute Care is a leading innovator in patient-centered value-based care. It's just such a great pleasure spending time with you today. And I really learned a lot and I'm excited to share this interview with our listeners this week. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much.